Welcome to the Andy Griffin Show, the number one talk show in St. George, starring Andy Griffin. It's a sunny Tuesday morning, the last day of June. Also, uh, I guess, kind of election day, although mail-in votes. So uh, you could have voted uh, 10 days ago or whenever it is you got your ballot. But, uh, yeah, it's it's officially election day, and uh, there's many of you who have not voted yet. And uh, maybe you want to throw your vote in with uh, Thomas Wright, who's on the phone with me right now. Thomas, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me on. Good morning. Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate uh, you joining uh, joining me today. Uh, you are where are you at right now? What's your hometown? I'm in Salt Lake City, where I live. Um, I was with my family early this morning, and now just joining. Uh, you know, the over 100 volunteers making calls and texting voters who haven't returned their ballot. So, going to be a fun get out the vote day. Very cool. By the way, uh, nice picture of your family on your website, Right Utah. W-R-I-G-H-T, Utah. Uh, Good-looking family, man. I I think they overcame whatever it is you had, and they all look really good. You know, when we took that picture, they said, we need to have you right in the middle. And I said, no, trust me. I'll do a lot better if I'm not right in the middle. Any one of the other five would be way better in the middle. Yeah, you you and me both, man. Uh, I I know what you're talking about. Well, Thomas, do you go by Thomas? Tom, Tommy? Thomas is great, if if you don't mind, Tom. Yeah, no, no, no problem. I want to call you what you want to be called. Just don't call me Andrew in return, though, because I only I only get called Andrew when I'm in trouble. So all right, Andy, I won't I won't do that. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, obviously, the the race has not gone your way at this point, um, and it would take a, a miracle probably for you to win. But tell me, kind of a what? I, it's funny. I, I you know I I've been covering sports for twenty five thirty years now, and I always ask a coach when we're doing a preseason game, "Hey, coach, uh, what do you hope to accomplish today?" And they're like, "Win." I said, oh, I know that, but I mean, besides winning, what are you trying to accomplish? Thomas, what were you trying to accomplish besides winning? Well, I was a student athlete, and so I understand that, you know, mm-hmm. be present in the moment mindset. Don't worry about the outcome. You can't control it. All you can do is control your performance. So I come from that school of thought. Um, you know, some of my opponents have been running for years. Um, you know, John Huntsman started in the fall. Spencer Cox started a couple of years ago. Um, those are huge advantages when... I started five months ago, and three of those five months I've been locked up at home. And when you start with lower name ID and you're not a professional politician, you've never held public elected office, time is the one thing you need to get out, to look people in the eye, to have them feel your energy and your sincerity and your passion for Utah, and to have them say, wow, this is a guy that really wants to serve, and he comes from the business sector, so he's got that private uh, executive business experience. But he also has a lot of political leadership experience because I've been a county chairman, a state party chairman. I was a vice chair of the Republican National Committee. So I'm the perfect combination, and I do believe in miracles. I'm still in this to win it. Uh, we have a lot of support out there. And I would just say, you know, the worst thing a voter can do is pander their vote. You know, the one thing we don't like about politicians, and this is one of the reasons I got in, is they pander their vote, right? They'll say anything to get people to vote for them. Sure. You know what I mean, Andy? Oh, yeah. What you don't want to do is be a voter that's like, well— I really think he's the best candidate, but I'm going to strategically vote. That's the worst thing you can do if you're a voter, because if you do that, you're breeding, pandering politicians. Vote for the candidate you think is best and let the chips fall where they may. Remember when they said Donald Trump couldn't win? Yeah. There are tons of elections where the polls said the guy had no chance of winning, and he did. And I believe that. So I'm going to find out soon enough, and uh, I believe in my race. And let me say that. Um, somebody really close to me said the other day, you know, you talked a lot about public education, teacher pay, and a lot of things that now all the candidates are talking about. 
So I have won uh, the, the message me, and, and I'm proud of that because I got in as an outsider, and I have saved a lot of the messages in this race, not all of them, uh, but many of them, and I'm really proud of that. And, uh, and so my voice has been heard. The voice of my supporters has been heard, and there are tens of thousands of my supporters out there, and I love them and I appreciate them. And I'm asking for more today. Those that haven't voted, vote for Thomas Wright. Uh, we need new people in politics, not just recycling the same uh, career politicians. Yeah, well said. And, and you know, to to kind of address what you were saying, I had someone on the show a couple of weeks ago say, look, don't vote for who you think will win or don't not vote for someone because you think they won't win. Vote for who you think would be the best governor yes. and, and leave it at that. Yes, and that's, that's exactly what I was saying earlier. Look, the best part of this race for me, when I go to bed tonight, Andy, I can look my wife and my kids in the eye. I ran an honorable race, and I shared the positions as they are in my heart. The greatest compliment I got paid in this campaign is I came home from one of the debates. I think it was the one that I was declared the winner in, and my wife looked at me and she said, I don't even care that you won. She said, everything you say when I hear you on TV is exactly how you talk about the issues at home. And you know what? That was the, I don't think she knew how big of a compliment she was paying me. I've told people where I stand on the issues. I've shared my vision. And if voters want me to serve, I will do it. And if they don't, then I then then I will support whoever they want, and we can all move on. I have a great life. I have a great business. It would be a total honor to serve. But I've shared what I feel in my heart, and I've I've worked hard every day. Nobody in this race has outworked me. I've I've fundraised on par with these career politicians. So I'm really proud of the race that I've run. I like that. You know, what what you're talking about, I think, is is integrity, and uh, I I feel I I. I same kind of thing. My wife told me once, she, she said, you sound like just like you do on the radio. And I said, that's because I don't want to misrepresent who I am just because the microphone's yeah. on. You know what I mean? Andy, that is not the greatest compliment. You yeah. know, I, 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 I feel you. I didn't plan on that being a moment in this campaign. But, I, you know, imagine the, the opposite. You come home and your wife says, why did you say that? You <laughs> that. Like, we're, you know what I mean? Imagine, imagine looking your kids in, in, in the eye and them knowing that you're, you're pandering. Yeah. You know, I, I just I, I'm I'm fine with the outcome uh, when your integrity is intact and you 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 operated above board. You've shared your message, but I've also been tough and strong, and I've tried to hold my account and my opponents accountable, which is not negative campaigning. I think that's another misconception. If, if an elected official decides to run and we ask him about their performance as an elected official, that is not negative campaigning. We need to do that in this country. We need to hold them accountable. They're representing us, and so. I've been tough, but I've been kind and kept the integrity intact. So that's good. I, I like that to hold hold them accountable. That's we need def, yeah. definitely need more of that in this modern uh, political world. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, Tom uh, Thomas, sorry uh, about about some of the issues in Utah. Uh, I, I you know I tried to wrap up the race already, but uh, it's not over. And let's talk about some of the things that you feel like you could bring to the table. You would bring to the table when it comes to the state of Utah. Well, think about it. Uh, the pandemic is our biggest issue, right? I mean, it hit us out of nowhere. Obviously, there's health care uh, ramifications and, and effects that we have to deal with. But let's talk about the economics for a minute. We're three months into this pandemic. And with all due respect to state government, they've done, they've done um, exactly nothing as far as tax relief or economic relief for small business owners and the people that are really struggling. We have a rainy day fund of a billion dollars. Some of it can be used in some places and others. It has earmarks, so I want to be fair about that. We have a AAA bond rating where we can borrow about 1.1%. We 
we should be helping and not subsidizing and bailing out, helping, assisting. We need to make capital available to small businesses and to those that are unemployed. We need to take some of that money and retrain the 200,000-plus people that have filed for unemployment to, to get them back on their feet, to get them back to work. Utahns believe in self-sufficiency, the dignity of work. We've got these higher education institutions like you have Dixie State. I'm a huge fan. I was on the Board of Trustees. Uh, you've got the Outward Innovation Set. You have so many cool things. We've got to get people back to work. We have the resources to do it. We should be investing in our human capital. And I would like to, I would like to see a, a, a quicker response. We've been focusing so much on the healthcare side, which is important. But there's another side of it, the economic. And let me tell you, as I've traveled the state, the depression, the uncertainty, the anxiety that people feel over when will I go back to work? Will I go back to work? Will my business survive? That's real stuff. Yeah. And, there's a, and we already have a mental health crisis in this state, so we, we've got to start tackling that. Yeah, I would throw the word fear in there a little bit, too. And not, not the yeah, kind of fear like yeah. you're being chased by a bear, but the kind of fear of, the, of uncertainty. For sure. Yeah, I've lost. I've talked to people who've lost their businesses. You know, they put their heart and soul and their life savings, and, and it's gone. Mm. And and you talk to them, and your heart. Honestly, man, I could I could I could tear up just thinking about it. You you just feel their pain, and, and nobody wanted it to happen. I'm not blaming. I'm just simply saying that I think state government needs an economic recovery plan, uh, unlike any that we've ever seen. And I'd love to see it deployed quickly. I put one on my website with with several ideas. You can go to writeutah.com. It's called Jumpstart click on the link and you can see it so i've done what i'm asking them to do um we have great people in the state that have that hold public office and, and I, i'm sure that they'll get to that point how would you rate what uh, our governor and lieutenant governor have done as far as the health side of things with with the coronavirus pandemic have they have they done what you think is right or do they need to do more i know mask is a huge a hot topic right now well, this is the thing. You, 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 you should find out what the principles are of the person you're electing. And that way you know what decisions they'll make. Hmm. So let me share a couple of principles about Thomas Wright and Congressman Bishop so you know about the Wright Bishop ticket. Okay. Number one, I have said for years, so I'm on the record, probably going back all the way to President Obama, I do not believe in governing by executive order. I, I, I understand in times of emergencies, you, an executive or the governor or the president has to sign an executive order in real time to make things work. But when you're three months into a pandemic and you've got this much time under your belt, it's, it's plenty of time to convene a legislature. They are our elected officials. It's a republic, and we need to hold them accountable. They prove they can meet over Zoom. I believe that you make the executive order to make sure things are happening, but then you convene the legislature. We need those checks and balances in government so that our constitutional liberties and our freedoms are not violated. And I believe in that. I believe in our great constitution. I believe in checks and balances, and I believe in the three branches of government. That's kind of principle number one. Principle number two is I am, I am wholly against uh, no-bid contracts. In my business, I would never hand a blank check to one of my vendors, because if I did, I know exactly what they'd do. They'd right. do what anybody would do. They would overcharge me. No-bid contracts are not the way to go. Now, you may have to do one or two when a pandemic hits you out of nowhere. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody knew anything about it. That's all fair. But when you're doing it on an ongoing basis, what happens is what's happening right now. We have a tracing app that violates our civil liberties. We're paying $300,000 a month in service fees. We're going to end up paying $6.6 million for that app. It still doesn't work. Right. We paid $800,000 for hydrochloroquine, um, that, and, and, and we contracted for $8 million. I think the state's getting out of that contract, but this is the kind of thing that happens 
when you're when you're allowing no bid contracts. I don't believe in governing like that. So while you don't know what the emergency will be, you know what Governor Wright will do by knowing those two two principles. I like that. And, and back to your first point, the, the three branches of government, I think that it really rings true what you said because it, it becomes a uh, almost a, a, a monarchy. If you have the governor just issuing edicts and making all the decisions for the state, you're right. We've had plenty of time to get that legislature together and get things done. Yeah, I mean, if you have an earthquake and you can't come in the legislature and you're the executive, yeah, you've got to make decisions in real time and you have to elect somebody who can step up and lead in a time of crisis. Uh, but but ongoing, that is not the way to govern. And the reason it's not, it isn't because any one person is wrong. It's just we don't want to set the precedent for that. Because once we set the precedent, where's the line? What actually is an emergency and what's not? And when can an executive just tell us we all have to stay home and we have to close our businesses? And that's basically what happened. And so that's where you see the the, the frustration in, in with Utah. It's not directed necessarily at the people as much as it is the decision to do that on an ongoing basis. Let's convene our legislature. There are elected representatives. We get to hold them accountable every couple of years. It's a republic. They get to cast a vote in public. They have to hold public hearings where citizens can weigh in. We can see the debate live, and we can watch the vote, and then we can hold them accountable. When you get an executive order, you don't know what happened in the proverbial room where it happened. Mm -hmm. You don't know who was there. You don't know what the discussion was. You don't know why some businesses had to close and some didn't. And that does not breed trust. People are already very untrusting of government, and they should be. That's healthy. But, But they should also be able to hold their government accountable. It's a touchy topic, but Black Lives Matter has been uh, on everyone's mind lately. There have been protests, even sometimes riots and, and violence. Uh, Thomas, does Utah have a racism problem, and does Utah have a police uh, policing the police problem? Yeah, racism in our country it is real. Um, I want to separate the two. Uh, those are two issues you just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be a part of the solution. I have talked to, um, I've talked to black community members in our state. Uh, I I was I should have done it a long time ago, but I reached out to them after the riots, and I couldn't believe some of the things they were telling me have happened to them in the state of Utah. I learned a lot listening to them. Um, it, they were very civil, uh, kind discussions, but I learned a lot, and I want to be part of the solution. I want to talk about uh, racial inequality in our society, and I want to stamp it out. I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be a part of the silent uh, majority anymore. I want to step up, and when I see something that I think is out of line or out of bounds, then I'm going to speak up, and I'm going to do something about it. And I think we can all agree that we can do better. Um, and so that, that's that. On the other side, look, our policemen and women are incredible people, and they agree that there can be reform to have better results than they're getting right now. And they want to be part of the solution. They want to be part of of, of creating a solution. It's not just law enforcement that needs to have a good look at what's going on. There's plenty. All of us need to have a look at it, don't we? I mean, I just admitted that I do. Let's all look at it and say, how can we be a part of the solution in stamping out racial inequality? Well, let's do it peacefully. Let's do it thoughtfully. Let's not lose this moment. This is a really important moment in our state and our country's history. Let's not let it pass us. Let's seize it and have the really hard conversation. And let's not point the finger and blame good people. Let's look at society collectively and say, let's all be a part of the solution. And let's no longer allow it's just the little passive things that go on that breed bigger racial, uh, racial problems. A couple of decades ago, Dixie State dropped the name Rebels. 
became the Red Storm. That was an interesting little experiment there that didn't quite work out. Uh, now they're the Trailblazers, and every, you know, everything's okay, right? And then just in the past few days, Thomas, uh, there have been a couple of petitions out there that we, you know, Dixie, just the very name Dixie, which is much of this area is referred to as Dixie, uh, is, it could also have racial connotations, and maybe that needs to be dropped as well. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I was involved with the Dixie State Board of Trustees back in 2014. I was appointed by Governor Herbert, so I sat three years, about three years, I believe, on that uh, on that board. I, you know, man, there's some great people in your community on that board. President Williams, fantastic president. Um, wow, this Dixie State has just exploded, and it's such an important part of St. George and Southern Utah and Greater Zion. Um, so, I look, I believe this is a local decision. I believe these decisions should be made locally by local citizens who know best. As governor, that's how I will always promote it. We just need to have thoughtful dialogue. We need to get people together, and we need to have hard conversations. And then we need to make hard decisions. And so whatever whatever the community wants to do with that, um, you know, look, I said earlier, I want to be part of the solution. I want to be part of creating a country where everybody feels included. Uh, I want everybody's individual rights and freedoms and constitutional liberties to be protected. Uh, and I want, and I want to be part of just I, people knowing that I will have the hard conversation. So let's have that hard conversation. Uh, I'll be a part of it to the degree that it's appropriate for a sitting governor. Uh, but I believe that that's a local decision that should be made locally. Just, to, just for the record, by the way, the two most popular petitions to get rid of the name Dixie have approximately three thousand signatures. The two peti- most popular petitions to keep the name Dixie have about thirty thousand signatures uh, to this point. So, right now, the public uh, sentiment obviously uh, is, is uh, you know, Dixie does not mean uh, Confederacy and slavery and racism. Dixie means uh, the volunteer spirit that really founded this area. At least that's the feeling I'm getting, Thomas. Yeah, and that's the thing is, that's why it needs to be local, right? Because that, that's why, you know, you have citizens and that's why you have people there that understand it and they should weigh in and it's their, you know, it's, it's your community, right? And and, I, and as governor, I want to promote those local decisions, but I also want to have hard conversations and, and, and not shy away from them. I was there when the Red Storm uh, conversation was going on. Um, I, I watched that. Um, I was there when Trailblazer was introduced. So I'm no stranger to this discussion. Um, and I, and I want to I want to applaud your community for having the conversation. Aren't you proud of the fact that you can have that conversation and people can speak up and share their perspective? I think that's that's what America is all about. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's the American way, Thomas. Totally. All, all of us speak our mind and then make a make a peaceful and uh, educated decision. I love it. Yeah, especially that word peaceful, right? And I believe in peaceful protest. But man, the the, the riots and arson and vandalism and destruction of property—that's where. Yeah, we have to put our foot down and say, no, we can peacefully protest. We can fight for what we believe in. That's got to be peaceful and it's got to be respectful. Got time for one more question, uh, Thomas. I wanted to ask you about education in the state of Utah. We are annually one of the lowest states as far as spending per student uh, in the entire country. I think last last time we were 49th out of 50 states or something like that. And yet our students still perform fairly well. Uh, what needs to happen to change that or does it need to change? Well, we're 51st now out of 50. Oh, ouch. I, I, when we fell to 51st, I didn't even know that was possible. But yeah. There you have it. Um, to be fair, we spend more as a percentage of our state budget on public education than any other state, or as much as any other state. We're in the top of that category. We have a big state. Much of our land is locked up. We don't get revenue from it, so therefore we don't have as big a budget. That's why the public land discussion is so critical to our state. 
But then you also have to look at it and say, okay, if we're spending a large percentage of our state budget on education and we need to do better, what do we do? And that's why I've advocated in this campaign reallocating resources. We need to reallocate the resources to make sure they're getting where they need to go. Teacher pay has to be a top priority. Our teachers are not being paid enough, and they're not being treated with enough respect, and that's why they're leaving the profession. That's why we have a teacher shortage in the state of Utah. We've had that shortage for many years. And that's one of the reasons I'm running. Look, my opponents have been there, and they'll talk about this, but why didn't they do anything about it during the greatest economic run-up the state has ever seen? What leads voters to believe that they'll suddenly change their tune now? Uh, We need new leaders that come in and say, hey, we've got to reallocate the resource to fill into education. We don't need more taxes. We don't need more revenue. We just need to make sure the money gets where it needs to go. And let's have, again, a hard conversation about that. Let's make some hard decisions, just like the other topics we've talked about. Let's sit down and collaborate and listen. But let's remember, these are taxpayer dollars, and the taxpayers want outcomes. They want their students to be educated and ready to compete in a global marketplace. And we owe it to them to look at the entire education system from top to bottom. So how can we improve this? How can we make it world class so that our students are getting the best education possible? He's Thomas Wright, a gubernatorial candidate. He's not giving up hope. Hang in there, Thomas, and we'll be watching closely as the results trickle in with our mail-in voting. Thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us today. Thanks for having me on, Andy. I really appreciate it. You have a great show and great community, and I wish you all the best. Thank you, Thomas. Happy Tuesday to you, everyone. It is June 30th, last day of this month, and then we hit the dog days of the summer. Of course, 4th of July is coming up this weekend. We, A quick reminder, we will not have this show on Friday. In fact, it will be all, all the satellite on Friday. That's our official holiday for those of us. I work for Cherry Creek Media, so uh, no live show on Friday, but we'll be back Monday to get after things. And uh, another thing I want, I've been meaning to bring up, and I keep forgetting, and uh, my apologies to uh, Jack Hunter and the guys over there at the Warbird Museum. They've got a cool thing coming up this uh, this weekend. In fact, it's Thursday through Sunday. It's uh, They're going to have a couple of World War II bombers fly into the airport and, and then land and kind of taxi over by the uh, airport museum, by the Warbird Museum uh, out there at the St. George Airport. A B-17 and a B-25 will be flying in uh, for the Independence Day holiday. You have a chance to uh, look at the plane, tour the planes, and if you can afford it, it's several hundred dollars, but you can actually fly in one of those incredible airplanes uh, so yeah, I mean, this is, this is pretty awesome stuff. The uh, airplanes, let's see, the B-17 is called Sentimental Journey and the B-25 is called Made in the Shade. And, uh, they'll be there from uh, Thursday through Sunday this weekend for the holiday. Uh, tours, I think are $15 or I think it's $25 for a family. Uh, and then, uh, if you want to ride, actually ride in the airplane, ch- check this out. If you want to be in the, uh, waste compartment seat that's $425 and if you want to be in the bombardier navigator seat that's $650 a little too rich for my blood but hey if it's on your bucket list always wanted to ride in a world war ii bomber you might want to just to pony up the bucks and get that thing done that'll be again this weekend uh, pretty much daytime hours I think it's like noon to 6, Thursday through Sunday. Get on down, down to the Warbird Museum out there at the airport. Dr. Sue Jackson is with me this morning. Dr. Jackson, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Andy. Thanks for coming on the show. I was going to say you're an old friend of the show, but you're not old, so you're just a friend of the show. 
I appreciate appreciate you coming on today. It feels like a long time, doesn't it? It feels like it's been months and years here. I think we all feel old at this point, you know, with uh, (laughs) having been trapped at home and having to wear masks when we go places and things like that. But uh, it's all for the greater good, right, Sue? It is all for the greater good. If we can protect lives, that's what we're trying to do here. We had you on, I think the first time was way back in March when this this, uh, COVID-19 first started really gaining momentum. And uh, you warned us how bad it could be. It didn't get quite that bad. But uh, just when we felt like we were on the uh, back end of things, we have, uh, I don't know if a resurgence is right or just a surge uh, in cases in the state of Utah. Uh, What do you think? Is it just because we tried to open too soon or is it just this a natural part of things? What do you think, Sue? I think that we expected uh, a little bit of an increase as we opened back up. We, When we talked back in March, we were talking about trying to give health, the healthcare industry enough time to have appropriate testing, mm-hmm. to get supplies, ventilators, have our ICUs ready. And so we always knew that that was kind of the plan, is that we would get the healthcare system ready so that when they saw the surge of cases, they would be in the best shape possible. Now, I do think we are... Uh, at a sharper increase than even uh, the government leaders expected and the state epidemiologists expected. We did not expect to go this quickly. I would say it's a little bit of pandemic fatigue, that we are all tired of it and we want life to go back to normal. And I know some people who are absolutely life is uh, normal in their world. And so they're going to go out without masks on and they're going to do everything they would have done before. And so then we see this sharp increase in cases Uh, that could threaten then to uh, take our ICUs to capacity and really put us in a a bad place, especially as we look at, we're almost July here, uh, going back to school in uh, just over a month. Uh, So we have to get this under control if we want to go back to school in any semblance of normal in the fall. I want to give you a pat on the back. Uh, you said a few a couple of months ago, you said uh, the theory out there was once it got hot that it would uh, effectively just about kill this virus. And you said, I'm not seeing any evidence that that's going to happen. Well, you were dead right on that one, Dr. Jackson. Good job. Yeah, well, and once in a while we get things right here in public <laughs> health. Uh, but it's, it's all educated guesses based on what we're seeing worldwide. And so I made that guess based on other countries because we didn't see any decrease in countries that were warmer at the time because we were still in March. It was a little bit cold here, but there are plenty of countries who are warm by March and we didn't see any decreases there. So we kind of knew this was going to be different than the flu season, that the humidity levels were not going to affect it the same way that it affects the influenza virus. I know this isn't necessarily your area of expertise, but there are a lot of people out there. You mentioned the virus fatigue. There are a lot of people out there that believe that it's their right to do whatever they want. They shouldn't shouldn't have to wear a mask ever. Uh, What would be your message to those people? I think we have to remember that we are all interconnected, that your decisions affect those around you. And sometimes we forget that. And public health is a great example, whether it's you know, wearing a seatbelt or being vaccinated or not going out when there's a virus going on, that we are absolutely interconnected and we have the ability to save lives or to take lives depending on our own actions. And so this is where it gets a little bit complicated on where do your rights end and somebody else's rights start? Because while you may have the right to go out and not wear a mask and spread disease anywhere you want to, do you then have the right to take somebody else's life as they're trying to get groceries and are immunocompromised or elderly and they may not make it through this disease. So I think the big message is 
that we've got to look out for each other. This is a great opportunity for society to take a step back and say we value life and we value each other and we're going to do what we can to get through this together. I think one of the controversies with masks is that almost always when they say we recommend you wear a mask and then there's the or keep six foot social, you know, keep the social distancing protocol. And so a lot of people are like, well, I don't have to wear a mask. I'll just stay six feet or more away from everyone else. What's the flaw in that whole plan? So there's a couple of flaws. Um, Some of the recommendations are actually saying uh, six feet and a mask because we're not sure that six feet alone is going to do it. It depends on, we're looking at those respiratory droplets. So it depends on how fast they come out of somebody else's mouth. So if somebody is sneezing or coughing, those respiratory droplets could hit six feet. Uh, But the other bigger issue that I see is I don't think we're able to gauge six feet very well in our minds. That I see a lot of people that say, oh, I wasn't really that close to people. But if you've actually gotten out a measuring tape and started to measure, we did this in the office recently where we were moving chairs apart. And they are much further than you would think they are uh, to be six feet apart. So keeping that in mind, that you may not be super close to somebody in the grocery store, but are you really six feet from that person? Uh, And then the possibility of these respiratory droplets. So it's not just being past them, it's Uh, If we have somebody that coughs out in an aisle in a grocery store and then you walk through those respiratory droplets, it's kind of a disgusting thought, but Mm -hmm. uh, that's the way it happens is that you're walking through those respiratory droplets before they drop or die, then you can still get it without even being anywhere close to somebody else. Dr. Jackson, I'm six feet four and my whole life, uh, invariably when I meet someone new, they say, boy, you're tall. And, you know, when you're six foot four, you get used to that. But if you think about that, six feet uh, separation from other people, that's basically just about as tall as I am. That's how far apart we're supposed to be from everyone else when we're doing this social distancing. So just food for thought there. Uh, yeah. You're an educator. That's uh, that's what you do by, by trade, an epidemiologist and, and a teacher there at Utah Valley University. Uh, some announcements were made, or maybe not even announced, but it's been, it's been the, kind of the word out on the street is that uh, – a lot of classes are going to be what they call blended classes where you maybe might go to class once a week and the rest is online. And then it was also announced that there will be no class after Thanksgiving, so they're not expecting students to come back. What are your thoughts on this? What's your reaction? Do you feel like this is all a little premature, or do you think we're right on the money here? I think we're right on the money. Now, I, I do have to give the disclaimer that I helped make some of those decisions. So, okay. <laughs> so they're <laughs> great decisions, right? Um, yeah, they're great decisions. No. Uh, most of the universities are doing exactly what UVU is doing. And it, part of that is that we are tasked with keeping distance. Um, but as you know, the budget for the state is not great, uh, given this little recession that we're having. Mm-hmm. And so we're all trying to do more with less. And I think the public schools, the K through 12, are doing the exact same thing as higher education. We're trying to figure out how do we do six-foot distancing without having additional budgets to be able to hold a whole bunch more classes uh, or even the space to do so. And so we're coming up with some of these blended ideas of trying to keep people apart but still have a face-to-face experience on campus. I think every university is doing that with more online classes and then some blended or hybrid-type classes or alternating schedules. We're all kind of in the same boat with that one. In terms of Thanksgiving, the biggest concern was that by the time we get to Thanksgiving, we are going to be starting into flu season. So uh, we think it's bad right now with COVID. We're going to add the flu on top of that. We know that's going to happen. And so that intensifies all of our healthcare resources. But then the other issue that you have at a university at Thanksgiving time is that so many of our students go out elsewhere. 
And so they're traveling, they're going home, and then they all come back. And so we have this melting pot of disease is what Mm. I look at it as, uh, yeah, so that they're all coming back with these diseases right in time for finals. And so we haven't canceled classes after Thanksgiving, but we've moved them all online. So uh, even a class that is being taught in a face-to-face format will move online after Thanksgiving uh, to try and protect that uh, time period in terms of disease. We don't want all of our students to get sick right at finals week. Uh, We could have a massive outbreak if we know the incubation period is 2 to 14 days, 2 to 14 days after Thanksgiving break is finals week. Oh, wow. So so as a professor, as a teacher, is this going to be much harder for you? Is it going to be easier? Is it going to be about the same? There's going to be some challenges, um, certainly, as we try and do this modality. But I would say most of the faculty that I've talked to uh, are up for the challenge. They're resilient. They're happy to learn new things. Um, if we can look at a silver lining here of this pandemic, it's that we are learning new skills and new tricks. And this may actually become really our normal uh, after this pandemic is over, that we may try more of these modalities. So it has pushed us into the online realm a little bit more than we were. Uh, but I don't think that's a bad thing for today's learners. Do you, you know, one of, the, one of the problems that we, we, we talked about with, with masks and with education is, uh, you know, college kids could figure it out and high school kids maybe even can figure it out. But I'm trying to picture a six or seven or eight year old in elementary school uh, wearing a mask for six or seven hours at a time. And I just can't see that happening. Uh, is there anything we can do to address that problem? Yeah, I can see that um, issue. I have a six-year-old, so I've seen that issue of that mask comes on and off, and it gets pulled up, and it gets pulled down, and and it's quite comical at times. I don't know that it's (laughs) protecting. Um, You know, and I'll leave that decision up to the local school boards. I know that the um, state came out with some guidelines, and then they're asking each local school district to come up with their plan uh, by the 1st of August, but... In terms of masks and kids, the data is still not clear whether kids are really carriers of COVID to other people. We have seen very few cases among children, mm-hmm. and then we've not um, seen that they, uh, early on in the uh, pandemic, they said that children were likely to be the carriers to others. But I don't know that we have seen that, and I've seen a couple of articles that have said the opposite, that they don't appear to be passing it on like we thought they did. So I think we need a little bit more research there to say, are the kids actually getting this and passing it to their homes? And if they're not, then why make the poor little kids wear masks and be six feet apart and not have recess or lunch? But the problem is we're going to be able to look back in five or ten years and know what we should have done. But right here in the, in the moment, it's really hard to say what's the right call on that. Yeah, yeah, well said. Uh, you Okay, you want to take a call or two? I'm happy to do that. All right. Now, hopefully, my callers will be nice. Uh, let's go to line one. <laughs> Caller, you're on with Dr. Sue Jackson and with Andy. How are you today? Good morning. I'm well. Uh, Sue, I have a question for you. Uh, currently, at the uh, rate of cases that are being discovered here in Washington County only, not, not the five-county area, just Washington County, we're currently at, uh, yesterday, I believe it was 1,050. And if you go back and track uh, what, where we've been and where we are right now, we are doubling every two weeks. And that's been going on for some time now. So based on that trend, if we're at 1,000 right now, in two weeks we'll be at two, and another two weeks we'll be at 4,000, and another two weeks 8,000, and, and it explodes from there. 
since, and I agree with you, I think that people are tired of it. They've decided, you know, I've heard people say it's a hoax, it's not real, it, it's no big deal that you get it, blah, blah, blah. We are tired of it. We're sick and tired of it. We want things to be normal. But at the current rate of doubling every two weeks, where do you see this going? Or is that trend going to break, and what is it specifically that's going to cause that doubling every two weeks to break? Yeah, that's a good question. And we saw that same thing very early on. That's what I was watching back in March, that uh, doubling of rates. And I had the same panic of if we continue at this rate, how high will it get? Uh, and I do think it will break at some point. Um, I, uh, it, Whether it's people actually have a close call with COVID or somebody in their family gets it and they have to quarantine, I think it's easy to deny the existence until it affects you personally. And so I think that will start to happen, especially as the rates get higher and higher. It's getting closer and closer to home. And that may affect people. We need people to be responsible. We knew when we opened back up the economy that this would happen. Uh, but the whole idea was that people are going to be responsible and do things that are uh, promotive to the economy, but not put themselves at risk. So, you know, we may need to buy services and go shopping and do things like that to help small businesses, but we don't need to have block parties uh, just for the fun of it. Uh, we, we need to be smarter about our interaction. I do worry about you down there in St. George uh, just because of the the risk of your ICU becoming uh, overwhelmed. I've seen the reports from uh, the Dixie Regional Medical mm-hmm. Center um, professionals who have said we're going to be overwhelmed. And, and that doesn't put you in a great spot because that means you're life-lighting people uh, up north or down south, and that's not great if somebody is in critical condition. So I do think you have, you're in kind of a precarious situation there in the south. I do hope that they can get it under control uh, shortly so that your ICU is not overwhelmed. The other thing you have to look at with this ICU is that people end up in the ICU usually the second week of infection. The first week of infection, the symptoms aren't usually as severe, but they were infected two weeks before that at the uh, lengthiest uh, time period. And so when we look at cases, we're looking at people who were diagnosed and tested. We are already two weeks behind in all of the data because there's people that are being infected today that we will not test until next week who will not end up in the hospital until the following week. So any change we make in society is going to have a two to three week lag in what we're seeing in the hospitals. So it's scary when hospitals start to fill to capacity now because we still have two to three weeks before we could even see a a decrease there. All right. Go to line three. Caller, you're on with Annie with Dr. Sue Jackson. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Is this live today? Yes, you're on live. Okay, well, here we go. Listen, Dr. Jackson, she just keeps mm-hmm. rumbling. I must have an old show. Mm-hmm. Well, you, if you're listening online, it's a few seconds behind. Okay, I'll hold then. <laughs> okay. Did you have a question for the doctor? Yes, I do. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, doctor, I'm wondering, after the program... If you could stay around for a few minutes and have an in-house symposium um, with this guy that's host, because tomorrow he'll come on and he'll preach about not having to wear a mask. So he kind of talks out of both sides of his mouth, and I'm just wondering if you could stay around, maybe help get him straightened out, because he tried to go in Costco the other day. 
No, no, and I did not try. <laughs> oh, man. All right. I'll let uh, you respond to that one, Andy. Yeah, I, well, I, he's a guy that likes to call, call the show and cause trouble, and that's, that's fine. Uh, you know, the, the thing about it is, is uh, it's, it's really an interesting situation. Where, I mean, you address it right, right off the top in the fact that we have this fatigue. And uh, I, I honestly believe, you know, this has nothing to do with you, but a lot of the, the riots and protests around the country, I believe they're in part fueled by this very same fatigue that you're, that you're talking about, Dr. Jackson. Uh, people are frustrated yeah. and, and it's pent up, you know. It's been a long year and it's been a frustrating year and everything that we thought was normal is not normal anymore. And we need to talk about taking care of ourselves and our mental health and all of those things because I don't think we're in a great place right now in America with any of that. Physical health, our mental health, our emotional health, the resiliency to be able to bounce back. We've not had to experience something ongoing like this. We've had disasters before, but they're usually quick moments in time. They're not a never-ending site here where we don't know how long this is going to last. And I think it's hard for a lot of people. We had a guy on uh, oh, a month or so ago. Uh, they called him the master of disaster. He was the guy that would uh, come on after a disaster, uh, for instance, 9-11, uh, and, and evaluate the financial cost that the impact of the disaster would have. And uh, this was just kind of as COVID-19 was really getting rolling. And I, I said, well, how would you evaluate the financial cost of this? And he said, I've never had anything like it. Because as you said, Sue, usually it's an occasion. It's a hurricane that came through or a tornado struck an area or, or you know, or, or a terrorist attack. And this COVID-19 is such a, such a wild card. My wife actually asked me something last night about it. And she said, what do you think? And I said, well, I don't know, dear, because this has never happened before we're all learning as we go yeah and it's it's a little bit crazy one of the statistics that i was looking at just recently when we look at our top causes of death in the united states that list has not really changed much since i've uh, been a university professor we teach it almost the same every single semester the numbers change a bit but those top 10 causes of death in the united states don't change and COVID is now up to number six um, in the top causes of death, which to have a disease not only make the list, but then jump so quickly. I mean, we're at 130,000 deaths in the United States right now, and our normal for flu and flu and pneumonia, influenza and pneumonia, is at 56,000. So we have doubled um, that which we usually have from flu and pneumonia in just COVID cases. So, and and we're in halfway through the year. I mean, if we continue with that trajectory we will be up at number three cause of death behind only heart disease and cancer we have never seen that right. and so this is a unique time it's a unique perspective uh something we've never seen before and the evolution of it too because for the longest time i don't you i'm sure you follow the different counties the different areas of public health beaver county for the longest time I mean, three of the three of the three and a half months we've been doing this had zero uh, cases in Washington County, we were getting like four or five a day. We had a couple of days where there were zero, and and so uh, I don't know that the disease has evolved, but the way that it is affecting us here in Southern Utah has certainly evolved. I mean, what, what was it, sixty something the other day? Uh, that's a little different than the eight or whatever we had, or the zero that we had just a month or so ago. Yeah, and I do think that the uh, people are out and about more. We've seen more travel and. And this is not going to positively affect you there in St. George is that I see a lot of people doing regional travel because they don't want to get on airplanes. And so they're going to Zion, they're going to Moab, they're going to Bryce, uh, some of these parks. 
as opposed to going on an airplane and visiting Disneyland, which is still not open. So I do think you're getting a, a tourism bump there that's probably not helping your cases and won't help the cases. But again, it's this balance of health and the economy of how much can you shut down and not allow people to come in to protect your own people. Well, I got a minute or two left, Sue. I, I did want to ask you, so uh, early on, uh, you mentioned it. We were trying to slow the spread so that emergency rooms and hospitals would be ready for it. That almost implies that we were all meant to eventually get it, or at least uh, you know the, the whole herd immunity thing. Can you talk about that for just a minute? Yeah, so we have two ways out of this. Either we get herd immunity, which is about 80% of the population gets this disease so that it protects those who haven't gotten it, meaning that it can't spread in a population because enough people are immune against it. Hmm. And that, uh, and then the other option is a vaccine, which is still probably not quite a year, but somewhere around a year out. Even if we do find a vaccine that works, they have to produce it and then distribute it, which a lot of people are not talking about. But that usually takes some time to get enough of the vaccine and get it spread out uh, so that everybody can be vaccinated. Both of those rest on the idea that immunity is long-lasting, which we still don't know with coronaviruses. Your common cold, it's not long-lasting. That's why you get them again and again. So this is a severe coronavirus, and it may be different. But we're in a, an interesting uh, field if this is a immunity for two to three months and not lifelong or even year-long immunity, we could be in trouble with this. So it's unknown where we're going to take this and where we actually see the end point of all of this. There's that thing again. We just don't quite know yet. All right, Dr. Jackson, thank you for your expertise. I love talking to smart people. You're one of those smart people who have educated us today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. All right. We will have you on again. Thank you, Sue. It's uh, six six fifty eight now on News Radio ninety four nine eight ninety KDXU. Real quickly, appreciate Joe Shoney. He's a show sponsor. Has been since I've been here. Uh, online reviews are incredible. Three hundred seventy one reviews. He's averaging four point nine one out of five stars. It just doesn't get much better than that. Give him a call today four three five five nine zero sixty three hundred.